Welcome to the Fire the Family podcast. Did you know the average American is behind on their retirement savings? Imagine if your family could learn to budget, save, and invest enough to become financially independent. I'm here to show you through my own experience exactly how you can get on the path to financial independence and reach retirement on or before the age of 65. From age 19 to 28, Kayla and I have been married for nine years, had three boys, and earned four degrees combined with no student loan debt, and have taken our household income from zero to over $130,000 a year. We both want to invite you to firethefamily.com, where we have free tools and resources that you can use to get started on your financial independence journey. Now, let's get into the episode. Hey, welcome to episode 24 of the Fire the Family podcast. I'm Nick. Thanks again so much for giving me a little bit of your time today. Can't believe we're already on the 24th episode, and hopefully there's many more to come in the future. I do want to touch a little bit on uh, the content, kind of the stuff that I've been talking about in the last several episodes. While it may seem fundamental or basic to many of you, the philosophy of what I talk about isn't difficult. It's really not a hard concept to grasp and that the majority of the people still are unable to uh, find a way to budget, to increase their income, decrease their expenses, to plan for emergencies, uh, to start investing in the total stock market. Like as a bare minimum, that's like really simple stuff and like 90% of the population don't doesn't do it. And so while it might seem fundamental or basic to some of you. Uh, It's really trying to get as many people to feel like they can be a part of something like the fire movement. Uh, And really, it's just getting started and getting their feet wet and starting with the first, you know, little step and going to the next little step and then just building on it. And so what I wanted to do was spend the first couple months of the of the podcast and really flesh out the foundational aspects of what I want to build on in the future. And there's other things that I'm really excited to start talking about that I've kind of just been holding back a little bit. And that's just because I I want people that find out about Fire the Family, that find out about the website, to find out about the podcast, and they're not instantly turned off by it because I'm using a lot of jargon they don't understand. I really want to be accessible to the masses uh, for as long as possible. And then I'm going to start building on it and adding some more complex concepts. But really, you don't need to have complex concepts and you don't need to uh, try to be as like super, super efficient and all these, you know, little nitpicky details. And, you know, we can talk about travel expense credit cards and, and getting reward points and all that stuff. But uh, really, that's not doing somebody nearly as good as if they were to not be a budgeter and pick up a budget and start saving some of their money. That, to me, is really helping people, and that's where I'm focused at right now. And I don't know if you noticed this, but on Anchor, the, the app that I use for uh, recording my podcast, they allow you to do seasons. And so right now, I'm technically in season two. Season one was kind of figuring everything out. Season two is really getting my um, my my processes down and to where I can continuously put out content and it's not taking away a ton of time from the family and the family unit and everything on the weekends. And 
season three, I have some really high expectations for, and I don't really know when I'm going to decide to say, hey, we're now in season three, but I want to start getting into some kind of nuanced topics as well as uh, eventually, I'm not sure how far from now, but I want to start talking about building passive income like websites and and not that the site's going to turn into an SEO site, a search engine optimization site or anything like that, but this is the business of the 21st century in my opinion and, and something that it can pay a lot more dividends than uh, getting like a single family home as a rental. Uh, so if you were to compare like the amount of money you can make off of running a, an authority website versus uh, buying a single family rental, like it's a crazy comparison and you can make a lot more money each month by putting in a lot less work uh, and not having a lot less stress on your plate. And so that's something I'm really excited to talk about and ultimately just teach people how to do it, how to start an authority site, because whether you know it or not, you can be an authority in just about any field that you, you want to be in uh, and really start by looking at like your background and where your experience is and what you're passionate about. And you can plant your flag in the ground and say, this is what I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to build a business off of. And then you can go out and you can really give a lot of value to people that have the same interest. And the exciting thing is, is it can be just about anything, you know. Uh, my wife watches The Office all the time, reruns or watches it on Netflix. And she could run a an office blog or website probably and probably make money off of it. Um, I don't want the episode to be about that today, but that's really where kind of where we're headed. And I'm going to start talking about things that are going to help people build real wealth in their life without taking a lot of extra time away from their family. It's something that you can do while working full time. It's kind of a side hustle, uh, kind of like the old adage where you'd go be like a pizza delivery driver for a while to get out of debt. Uh, and I think your time would be much better served building up an asset that's going to be out there for a long time that can earn money via ads and just super passive income. Um, so that's, that's something to think about and, uh, let me know if, you know, if that's something that you're interested in, or if you, you know, want me to put content out about that sooner than probably another month or so from now, but that's kind of where we're headed. I like giving you a glimpse in the future and I don't really like staying in one place for too long. So we're going to cover a lot of ground here on the podcast. Today's episode is going to be about getting started in real estate, REITs, real estate investment trusts versus physical real estate. If you don't know what REITs are, their uh, real estate investment trusts are basically like an index fund for real estate. So if you remember what an index fund is, it's like a portfolio or a basket of companies that a uh, that the index fund owns or they purchase, right? And it's not actively managed, so there isn't a fund manager that is uh, making you know rebalancing changes all the time. They're passively managed and they have extremely low expense ratios. And they give you a huge amount of diversification and exposure to tons of different sectors, tons of different companies, uh, even from small cap to large cap, um, different sized companies. And it's a really good mix and allows regular people like you and me to get a really big exposure to the overall market uh, without having to buy each company individually, which just is not feasible. And it's a really great way to just you know set it and forget it and allocate money each month to it and just not get... Uh, analysis paralysis when you're trying to figure out where you want to invest your money in the market. A REIT, real estate investment trust, is very much the same in that it's a portfolio or a basket of companies that are basically real estate companies. And so the long and short of it is, is that a uh, real estate company will put out basically uh, stocks 
and then those stocks are then purchased by the REIT, and then the REIT uh, has to pass on like 90% of the income to its uh, shareholders and the people like us that own the REIT. And then I, I believe the 10% then goes to like expenses and running the actual uh, business itself. And so they have to pay out like a set amount of money to you. And so the REIT's kind of a pass-through uh, to the end user, uh, the investor. And the nice thing about a REIT is really the, the the long and short of it is that you don't have to manage a property. You don't have to go through the hoops and jump through the hoops that you have to jump through when you're buying a physical property. It's not as stressful. Uh, something my perspective from me is that I was really worried about um, getting into physical real estate and just having that extra layer of stress and having to think about it all the time. And this is really a set it and forget it. So we're going to just compare the two in this episode. And uh, hopefully if you have any questions, just reach out to me on Twitter, send me a DM, follow me on Instagram at the.nick.french. You're not going to see anything Fire the Family related on my Instagram, by the way. And that's really just because I'm not ready for my work to find out that um, I have kind of this side hustle thing going on. Um, not that I do this during work, because I definitely don't. I don't use any work resources to uh, make this happen. But um I just don't want the attention. It happened when I had a YouTube channel a long time ago and I wasn't actively making content, but the work found out I had like 8,000 subscribers and a couple million views and it just was really distracting and I just, I, I'm not ready for that kind of uh, exposure, I should say. Uh, so what is a REIT? Uh, we already covered pretty much the nuts and bolts of that. Types of REITs, there's equity REITs, which deal with physical real estate. They generate most of their income through rent collection. Equity REITs typically focus on a specific property type, like apartments, office buildings, etc. There are mortgage REITs, uh, and those work by investing in property mortgages rather than physical properties. They generate most of their income through loan interest accrued. And so like if you were to go buy your house, uh, you'd notice within like a few days or a few weeks that that mortgage is probably going to get sold from the lender to a another bank. So ours went to uh, Wells Fargo within like a few, like a day or two of us buying the house. And then there's hybrid REITs, which is a mix of the other two REIT types. They generate most of their income through a mix of rental income and loan interest. And I specifically will be talking about equity REITs because that's where I'm invested and uh, really what I know about. I don't know much about uh, investing in mortgage REITs. Now, where do I really want to? Um, after watching The Big Short, which is one of my favorite movies, um, just something that I'm really not, I'm not super stoked about buying other people's debt, so to speak. And um, there's just a lot of unknowns that I have with mortgage REITs and I haven't done the proper um, research to, to really educate myself on it. So how do you purchase a REIT? Uh, it's very similar to index funds that own company stock. It's a basket of real estate companies that you're investing in. And most REITs have a large number of holdings spread out across different sectors, commercial, residential, etc. So REITs can be purchased through any major investment broker like Charles Schwab, Fidelity, Vanguard, etc and can be held in retirement accounts like a 401k, IRA, etc. So uh, very simple to purchase them. You open up a brokerage account. I don't know if you can buy them in Acorns. I don't think so. I don't know if you can buy them in Betterment or M1 Finance. I'm sure that they're available. Um, but I, I buy mine through Charles Schwab. It's just super simple. I like the old school way of, of opening up a, uh, a brokerage account and having you know all those tools at my disposal. And I don't need just like a super flashy app because I'd get in there like once a month to, to make sure that my money's allocated to the right spot. 
So let's get into REITs versus physical real estate. This is really the big argument, and there's definitely benefits to both. Um, in the article that I wrote, I'm more biased towards REITs because of my personal situation, my personal family situation, my investment goals, my investment timeline and horizon, and my own research. And so I urge you to do your own research. The information I present isn't inaccurate. It's just probably skewed a little bit towards uh, what fits my life uh, today, and it might not be accurate for your life today. Physical real estate ownership is a difficult market market to enter. Uh, compared to simply buying a REIT, you must have a down payment, typically 20% if you want to avoid the PMI, and you may need to pay to get the property in a proper condition for tenants. And so you buy this property, you want to rent it out, and it may not be in perfect shape uh, to be able to rent it. So you, who knows, you may have to replace the carpet, you may have to re, you know, replace some cabinets or something, you might have to replace an appliance or two, uh, you, you may have to do some work on the front end to get it ready uh, to be a rental. And if you want to invest in real estate under a business, you may need capital to get the proper licensing, and you may incur additional business fees throughout the year uh, as a result of that. And so you definitely need to do your research on that end if you're going to buy physical real estate under an umbrella that's like an LLC, um, rather than just buying it outright as a, as a person. Um, I think you'd probably want that, uh, that protection from an LLC. That way, whoever is renting from you can't come and, and you know, have access to your to your assets, your personal assets, if they happen to want to sue you for some reason. Um, but a REIT, on the other hand, may have a small initial investment minimum. The Admiral Shares Index Fund of the VNQ ETF that I'm invested in, the Vanguard uh, uh, REIT uh, ETF, um, the Admiral Shares Index Fund equivalent requires a $3,000 initial minimum investment. And then after that, you can make, you know, $50, $100, minimum investments um, after that. Uh, it's similar to all the other Vanguard, like popular ones like VTSAX. Um, that requires that if you're going to buy the Admiral shares. You can get around that if you want to buy the ETF, which, of course, an ETF uh, basically is exactly the same. The VNQ is exactly the same as the Admiral shares, except for you can get into it with, from the, the price of a single share. And then there are some tax implications between index fund and, and ETFs. Um, but the ETF has no minimum, and that's that's the big takeaway. So plus one for REITs when it comes to minimum investment. What's it take to get started in a REIT? I mean, it, it would be if you wanted to get into VNQ, the the uh, the ETF, it would be uh, ninety three or ninety four dollars um, today, and so that's really low to get exposure to so much. So to talk a little bit about VNQ, just so you're you're up to speed, uh, it's diversified against like commercial, residential, uh, public storage is a big holding. The public storage company PSA, uh, that's a big one that they hold that I was pretty excited to have access to or exposure to. And uh, there's over 180 stocks in VNQ, and uh, those are all real estate focused stocks. And so you're definitely uh, against, you know, you're get definitely getting exposure to different markets, sectors, and geographic locations, which is super nice rather than just buying a single property at a single location. Uh, passive investment. Let's talk about passive investment. I've always heard real estate be called a passive investment. While setting up a property management company to care for your property and ensure occupancy will increase how passive it is, it's not nearly as passive as buying shares of a stock. You can't really get much more passive than just 
going and buying shares on a brokerage online and then going, uh, you know, with going on your, with your business and with, with your day and not having to think about it for pretty much the rest of the month. Or if you have it automatically set up to contribute, uh, you can put it to the side for the next quarter. You know, you don't have to check it all the time. Simply having to worry about the property takes away from its passive nature, in my opinion. Wondering if the tenants are damaging the property, upset about something, if the HVAC's going to break, or if the roof starts leaking, etc. My V&Q shares are about as passive as an investment as I've found. I could go a decade without ever looking at the investment. It's still going to grow, um, and I don't really have to think about it at all. My wife and I are stretched extremely thin between full-time work, kids, her master's degree, our house, etc. Being able to have investment exposure to different real estate sectors from a single purchase is extremely appealing. And for that reason, I give another plus one to REITs. They're far more passive than what you're going to experience with a physical real estate property, even if you use a property management. That property manager is still going to contact you for uh, different things, different problems or issues just to get your approval. And even that takes away from the passive nature of it. And while it's cool to be able to drive down the street and say, hey, we own that house or you know, may feel like you're actually doing a, a service where you're providing shelter for people and they're renting it from you, maybe they're unable to get a house loan. And so there's some definite definite nuances that um, I think are worth considering. But from my perspective and my family situation, a REIT is far, far more a passive investment than physical real estate. Return on investment. According to Investopedia, the average 20-year returns in residential real estate has an average ROI of 10.6%. Commercial real estate has an average ROI of 9.5% and REITs have an average return of 11.8%. Now that's uh, taking into account uh, REITs could be, you know, that's a large word to say because it can, it can encompass so much. And I'm curious, I should probably have a look to see, I bet you that's just tracking a specific REIT index, which uh, usually is how um, those, those data points are, are come to. But either way, it's comparable, if not a little bit better or outperforms a little bit uh, the physical uh, real estate side. If you calculate your ROI of rental property, requires more skill than simply looking at a 10-year chart like you can for a REIT. Uh, It includes cash-on-cash returns, money cash flow, monthly cash flow, cap rates, etc. Depending on who you're learning from, uh, they're going to have you you evaluate physical properties a little bit different. And so the ROI of a physical real estate property uh, can vary widely. Um, But typically, the appreciation of single-family homes in America is about 2-3% to per year over the long term. So to get an average ROI of 10.6%, you're going to have to consider the other factors above, and those studies usually take those into account. So while your house, you know, you're going to say, hey, this house is going to appreciate on average 2 or 3%, to be able to get up to the 10.6% or 9.5% that was talked about in the data points, uh, you're going to have to add in some of those things like your monthly cash flow and and different different tax advantages and depreciation and all that stuff. Um, So... Honestly, it's a little bit easier to understand just by investing in a REIT alone. It's that's it's just a lot less complex. Um, but 
there are some very significant nuances with physical real estate that could potentially make it a better investment over the long term. Um, but at the end of the day, the REITs have outperformed residential real estate, uh, according to the data, and uh, as well as even the S&P 500. Typically, S&P 500 is right around 8%. And uh, if you're outperforming that at, uh, upwards of 11.8%, 12%, that's really good. And so that's a great point to be at to get to something like financial independence. So I give that a plus one for REITs um, simply because the data is there on average over 20 year time spend, the REIT is going to have a higher average annual return. And by saying that, I do want to say that uh, it's important to take a step back before you, you know, you instead of just trying to get the take all the risk you can and trying to get the highest amount of annual return, just try to think, do I really need that, right? It's important to balance uh, risk and reward and your goals. And so if my goal is to be financially independent by the age of 40 or 45, I know exactly how much I need to invest each month at what specific average annual return and for how long it will take. And that's where you want to go. Go find a fire calculator and work backwards from your goals. And then you'll be like, hey, I might only need 7% for 20 years and I'll put this much in and I'm going to reach financial independence uh, more than likely. And then you can find fire calculators that run a Monte Carlo simulation. And that's essentially like it runs at like a thousand times and it gives you like odds of, of where you might land. And those are really great because they're running simulations and uh, we have technology today that can really help us understand what we need to do today to reach our goals in the future. And while, yeah, 13, 14%, uh, might seem like uh, what you want to do, or you see people doing day trading and they're making 30, 50% a day, uh, and the, taking on that high amount of risk to get that reward may not be what you need to do if you have a 10 or 20 year or even 30 year time horizon. Investment liquidity. Liquidity is defined as the availability of liquid assets, cash. How quickly can you take your investment from being a single family home to cash? How quickly can you turn your REIT shares into cash? That's the comparison. So how, how quickly can you take your home? If you're living in a house, if you have a mortgage today, or if you had one, how quickly could you take it from a mortgage to cash? And really just the equity because the, the rest of the loan isn't yours. So if I have $50,000 equity in my house right now, how quickly can I get that cash out? Well, you could do a cash out refinance. You could sell the house. But either of those things aren't going to get you cash within a few days. And so you're definitely not as liquid or close to being liquid as you are with something like a REIT. You can turn REIT shares into cash simply by going into your brokerage account, hitting sell. And then as soon as it sells, you have cash in your account. And so it's extremely liquid having REITs, not nearly as liquid as obviously an emergency fund. If that you keep that in a bank uh, where you can just go to an ATM and withdraw cash uh, or write a check or whatever. Uh, but REITs are very close to being that liquid. And a lot of people actually store some parts of their emergency fund in very safe uh, mutual funds, index funds, or even REITs, and because it's just so quick uh, to access it. And then however long you have to wait, maybe a day or a business day or two to, to ACH withdraw it out of that brokerage account into another bank if you need to access the cash or something. Plus one for REITs. That's another one for REITs. Investment risk. 
Buying a single real estate property comes with significant amount of risk, including market risk, geographical risk, risk of damage, liquidity risk, tenant risk, leverage risk, that's your debt, etc. There's a lot of risk that you are taking on when you're buying a single you know, single family real estate property, or even like a duplex, you know, uh, unless you're going to be able to buy big multifamily units or uh, multiple single family homes, multiple duplexes in different geographical locations, it's going to be really hard to diversify against things like geographical risk. And you're not really ever going to be able to get, you know, risk of damage. Uh, you're not gonna be able to lessen that, uh, obviously, with insurance and things. Um, but the risk is akin to purchasing shares of a single company. So it's just like going out and buying Tesla at $800 a share. You don't really know. I mean, it could go to, that's a, that's just a huge amount of risk, uh, as compared to relative to buying an index fund. All right. That's, that's how we're trying to, that's the lens that we're looking at risk through. You have a lot of exposure to risk and a little to no diversification. All of your eggs are, so to speak, in one basket. With that being said, some locations are not as affected by the general market fluctuations. For example, during the housing crisis, the total real estate market just got crushed. Uh, but there were pockets of real estate markets across the country that were insulated that didn't feel those effects nearly as bad. And this is definitely worth exploring. Where I grew up uh, in eastern Washington state, um, grew up through the housing crisis and real estate, when I go back and look at the charts, really wasn't affected where we lived. They kept, you know, I don't think it was a growth period uh, by any means, but it was largely flat and then recovered well. So I would say there's definitely pockets in probably in most states that uh, are insulated against the, the overall market. Um, but that's, that's definitely something worth educating yourself on if you're looking at getting into physical real estate. By purchasing a REIT or an index fund, your investment is highly diversified, not only across multiple companies, but multiple sectors and geographies. If one company within the REIT goes belly up, it's not likely going to affect the share price as you have hundreds of other companies in the portfolio as well. And usually at the first sign of weakness or um, a poorly run company or bad decisions, that REIT may start lessening their exposure to that company um, and protecting the and their overall investment and the investors that are invested in the REIT itself. REITs have much less risk exposure. The only real risk you have is general market risk. For that reason, REITs get another plus one. Access to property. By investing in a REIT, you'll have exposure and access to properties that you wouldn't be investing in in physical real estate. Properties that you are not qualified more than likely to invest in. Unless you're an accredited investor, which is something like a $200,000 a year income or over a million dollars liquid, um, I believe that's the last I have heard about being an accredited investor, it's not likely that you'll have an opportunity to invest in large scale apartment complexes or commercial real estate in large cities. Take self-storage units, for example. In order to build a self-storage facility, you'll likely need over a million bucks just to build or buy the facility. Uh, this would typically be in the form of a loan, and the rental income would need to exceed the cost of the property. That's very simple, and there's a lot more that goes into it than that. I mean, that's very simple, and there's... That's very simple, and there's a lot more that goes into it than that. Uh, but just simplistically looking at it, it's very difficult to get into something like self-storage. Um, and you start talking about big condos and giant apartment complexes, and that's just really difficult for an average Joe to get into. But you can have exposure to that uh, via purchasing shares within a REIT. So the alternative is to purchase shares like a company like Public Storage, PSA, 
It's the largest brand of self-storage services in the United States and operates as a REIT, owning many other self-storage companies across the country. Okay, so if you're driving around town and you see some self-storage, it may be owned by something like Public Storage, the company, or other companies like that that buy up public storage units across the United States. Uh, but that's something right now like $220 a share roughly, and that's that's even difficult to get into because it's a little bit higher of a barrier to entry. It's hard to really diversify out of that because now you're only exposed to public storage. And so an even better alternative is to purchase a fund like VNQ that holds public storage storage as well as many other REIT companies and its portfolio. There's no possible way you could effectively diversify yourself with as low expense ratio better than you can with something like VNQ. The reason VNQ or other REITs can do this is that they pool all the investors' funds and use that capital to purchase uh, real estate, essentially. So VNQ purchases REITs, and those REITs themselves use that money to go go on and buy the properties that they uh, invest in. That's another plus one for REITs. Uh, tax benefits, I'm not giving tax advice. I always recommend you to consult with a certified tax pro. There's so much that goes into taxes. Um, but I will say that rental property owners are able to deduct the majority of expenses they incur from their taxes. Filing taxes on rental properties is a complex activity, especially if you own a business. But there's a lot of potential benefits and tax shelters that you might be able to take advantage of. You're also able to defer capital gain taxes if you sell a rental and purchase another, allowing you to scale the quality of the property you're investing in. So you take the equity out of the lower priced house when you sell it and you put that equity into the next one that you are purchasing. So you can kind of scale up the, uh, the value of the properties you're buying. And when it comes to REITs, the dividend payments are taxed as ordinary income within your marginal tax rate, unless they're considered qualified dividends, qualified dividends will be taxed as capital gains. My only recommendation is to hold REITs within tax advantage accounts such as a 401k, an IRA, etc. This should help you with any taxes incurred by investing in REITs. And we currently hold all of our REIT investments within an IRA uh, with the dividends reinvested. So to summarize what we talked about, it may seem to be a biased take on the argument of REITs versus physical real estate, but it's really not. There's a lot of you know, a lot of factors that go into uh, the comparison. Um, and I, I know I touched on the ones that were most important to me and my family. So that's where the bias comes in. But honestly, I'm not wrong. Um, I think REITs have a ton of advantages. And while it's not as sexy as playing Monopoly and saying, oh, I own a house down on the boardwalk, you know, uh, and people are renting it out from me and I make money every month. Uh, that's it's it's still like a really good way to get exposure to the real estate market, especially if we go into a recession and prices tank. Um, it's just a great way to diversify away from stocks completely and have a whole nother market to explore. We have almost no bandwidth to add another responsibility to our plate. We both work full-time. Kayla's working on her master's degree now. I'm running this website, which is taking a lot of my free slash hobby time. We have three boys under the age of eight years old. We have a house. Uh, we've got a lot of responsibilities, and we still want to take vacations and, and do all that. And so I didn't want to add, and I know my wife definitely didn't want to add a, another, like a whole other thing on top of it uh, with having to manage properties and, and deal with that whole thing and, and really learning. Like there's so much learning that has to go into running physical real estate that I don't even have the bandwidth to really pick up a new hobby or new, learn a new skill at this point. So for me, it's just so much better to, even if I am leaving maybe a little bit of money on the table over the long term, 
term uh, to, to invest via a REIT and focus on increasing my income and my job and allowing us to invest even more money. And at the end of the day, uh, we don't need the 150 to $300 cash flow that a single family home would get us. Uh, we, I, can, I can do that a million other ways. And so we would be reinvesting that back into the business anyways. And so for me, just doing a REIT while reinvesting dividends and working my butt off at my job and earning a high commission and making sure that we have a budget in place, we have an emergency fund funded, and uh, we're, we're working on our savings rate and we're actually investing that savings rate. And that is, to me, uh, really all I need to do consistently over time to reach financial independence uh, within the next 10 to 15 years. And so that's really what's exciting. And I think we're going to get there a lot sooner. We've been hitting some goals, some stretch goals that we've had for ourselves a lot quicker than I thought we would. And so we might even be looking at like late 30s before we're able to say that we're financially independent. So um, thank you so much for hanging out on this episode. I hope you learned something new. Let me know if you have questions. Let me know if I missed anything. Uh, Rate us on whatever app, whatever platform you found us on. Share us with a friend if there's somebody that you think might be into this kind of stuff. Um, Let them know. Let them know that we exist. The more people that uh, we can assist in learning and giving exposure to different financial topics, uh, the merrier. So thank you again so much. I hope you have a great work week this week and uh, we will catch you on the next podcast episode.